Appalachia is a 205,000 square mile region that follows the spine of the Appalachian Mountains from southern New York to northern Mississippi. It includes all of West Virginia and parts of 12 other states. Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Maryland, Mississippi, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Often misunderstood and overlooked, Appalachia is home to some of the best writers and publishers in the United States. This program seeks to profile those authors and publishers, revealing how the region influences and impacts their work. From the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio, I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and now, Appalachia. And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio as we continue to profile some of the outstanding authors and publishers that have called Appalachia home or currently call Appalachia home. And we have another outstanding writer on the program with us today who is a native Appalachian and is also a mystery writer. So mystery writing uh, as well as Alfred Hitchcock are going to be a couple of the items we discussed today. And we are joined by a mystery writer, John Billheimer, who is a native West Virginian who now lives in Portola Valley, California. He holds an engineering PhD from Stanford University and for 30 years was vice president of a small consulting firm specializing in transportation research. The Contrary Blues was the first book mystery series that was set in Appalachia featuring failure analyst Owen Allison. The second book in the series, Highway Robbery, explores West Virginia road building scandals, while the third book, Dismal Mountain, covers the controversial topic of strip mining. The fourth book in the series, Dry Bone Hollow, deals with the false claims and scams that follow in the wake of a devastating flood, while Stonewall Jackson's Elbow tracks the aftermath of a $750 million bank fraud. The most recent entry, Primary Target, deals with West Virginia's skullduggery encrusted voting procedures. And John is also the author of a second mystery series featuring Lloyd Keaton, who's a Mist Western sports writer with a gambling problem. That debuted in 2012 with the book Field of Schemes, which is a mystery involving baseball and steroids. And his second book in that series, A Payer to Be Named Later, uh, deals with uh, Lloyd Keaton in another adventure. John is also the author of the book Hitchcock and the Censors, which traces the rise of movie censorship and documents its impact on Alfred Hitchcock as he battled blue noses to produce a lifetime of memorable films. John is married with two children. He's an avid tennis player and a movie buff, and he also teaches a series of courses on film noir and the modern mystery in film and print as part of continuing studies, as a part of the continuing studies program at Stanford and Santa Clara University. So, John, uh, we're delighted to have you here on Now Appalachia. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me, Eric. I wanted to ask you first before we get into uh, uh, your books and your mystery series with Owen Allison especially, um, how does someone go from uh, working in in consulting and and doing work and earning a degree, um, a PhD in engineering, how does someone go from kind of that line of work to becoming a writer? Well, it was a a big step in a way, but shorter than you might imagine. I I had always been pretty good at, in English courses in high school, but then as a, I was educated as an engineer, most of that 
got dropped, except that I still wrote reports and enjoyed doing it. So at some point, I maybe in the mid 80s, I thought, well, I ought to see whether I can do anything with this, with this talent that I apparently had, but abandoned back in high school. And so I started taking courses. I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there were a lot of, a lot of evening courses to be had. And so I started taking creative writing courses and wrote uh, a lot of short stories, got a lot of rejection notices. Finally, it dawned on me that uh, uh, what I read most are mysteries, so I ought to try writing a mystery. And I wrote, uh, uh, started, started writing mysteries. I wrote one that is still in a drawer somewhere, but then I wrote one based in Appalachia uh, in a fictional town called Barclay. It's pretty much like Beckley. And uh, that sold. And so I went on with that series, and and uh, it's been more fun than anything else I do. So I got into your series, of, your mystery series featuring Owen Allison, four books into it with Drybone Hollow, and then I had to go back and read uh, some of the rest. But Owen Allison's really a, an interesting character because um, he is he's a different kind of amateur sleuth. He's not really. Uh, he's not a writer. He's not a lawyer. He's not a pathologist. He's not uh, a priest. He's not uh, someone who kind of falls into what we see oftentimes as the amateur sleuth uh, trope, so to speak. He's a transportation inspector and kind of his focus and his expertise is why things fail. Can, can you tell us about uh, Owen Allison and uh, when you get into, he gets into his um, uh, first book, The Contrary Blues, kind of what he stumbles into uh, as he's trying to go about doing his work uh, as, a tra as a safety inspector. Right. Well, there's, a, there's kind of a dichotomy there. The first book, uh, I didn't realize it was going to be a series. Uh, it was called The Contrary Blues, and it, if, you've, if you've read it, you know that it, it uh, focuses on a, a bus system in rural West Virginia. And it, the city that the bus system serves is about to go under because big coal has pulled out and when that happens, uh, the city goes under. At the city fathers in contrary, the, the city where this takes place, figured out how to get a subsidy. They tell the federal government that they're running a 20 bus system. They're really only running two. Somebody is pocketing $500,000 a year. Uh, eventually the federal government catches on and uh, when they come to the city fathers, city fathers say, well look, federal government, we need to pay the librarian, we need to pay the clinic, we need to pay the policeman. We need that more than we need your buses. What do you care what we use your subsidy for? And while the federal government scratches its head over that, an auditor dies under mysterious circumstances and uh, the mystery goes on from there. Now, at that time, I didn't know I was writing a series. Owen Allison happens to be a guy who works for the federal government, he's a field consultant uh, for reasons that we need not go into, but they involve skullduggery uh, on the part of bidding and bidders. Um, so he comes and he solves the mystery by counting buses. Now, when St. Martin's, my publisher said, well, you know, there's gonna be another book in this series, right? And uh, my agent poked me in the ribs and I said, oh yes, certainly. I realized that I'd killed off the most attractive, the most attractive character in Contrary Blues. So I was left with Owen Allison who solved the mystery by counting buses. So I gave him a background of failure analysis, which is what he was a consultant in when he failed and went to work for the federal government. So now he's an independent consultant and being in failure analysis enables him to poke into things that 
could have mysteries involved. Why did this bridge break down? Or why, why did this bus crash? Who's responsible here? Was somebody behind the crash? So he, he has reason for poking his nose into these things and, and some expertise to bring to bear. And it seems like a lot of the circumstances Owen finds himself in are a result of someone or uh, a company or a group of people trying to take advantage of someone else. And I know you being from West Virginia, and we've talked to a lot of writers on the program from Appalachia that unfortunately say that that is a common thing that oftentimes happens in a lot of Appalachian communities uh, is, is groups of people being taken advantage of. Sometimes it's by outside companies, sometimes it's by government, sometimes it's by uh, someone else. Uh, is that something that you wanted to work into the Owen Allison series, kind of kind of people being taken advantage of? Does that, does that come from growing up in West Virginia and Appalachia, or is that just something more tied into kind of Owen's work and kind of his training as a, a failure analyst? Well, I, think, I guess I've not thought a lot about it. It, it comes, I'm sure, from being brought up in Appalachia because the whole state has been sort of uh, mined to death or, or you know, you've got uh, timber resources, coal resources that really have been mined by out-of-state uh, interests for the most part. So the, the, the natives have been down in the mines or have been doing the logging, have been taken advantage of by those forces. Uh, but that has never really been in my mind. I've, I've looked in many cases at things that really happened in Appalachia, that $750 million, $50 million bank fraud, that actually happened. Uh, and um, there, there's a, in a book called Dismal Mountain, which focuses, as you say, on strip mining. Uh, it also focuses on a, a, a local hospital that's uh, been taken advantage of by locals, actually. But that actually happened in Logan County, where a group of investors took over every active business in the county, and the only one that was really making any money was the, the uh, uh, hospital. They started to build a, a shopping center, in which uh, that's where they started cutting a mountain in half sideways and, and uh, ran into bad weather and union problems. And in real life, uh, the hospital was threatened because uh, suddenly the investors couldn't pay their bills, the hospital couldn't pay its bills, and uh, the hospital was about to go under. So the state stepped in and bailed out the hospital and by, by inference, the local investors. Uh, but in, in my book, the hospital administrators figure, well, you know, this shopping center is gonna open soon, and once it does, the investors will have the money to pay us off. So all you need to do is stretch things a little bit. So what they do is they, uh, they start overcharging uh, patients, and the patients they choose to overcharge are the, the terminally ill. So they figure they're not going to be looking at their bills too carefully. And, and the mystery goes on from there, but it, it was born in something that actually happened in West Virginia. I just stretched what was going on a little bit. And I guess you're right. Somebody is taking advantage of somebody else in, in most of my books. It could, could easily be... A, in the case of Drybone Hollow, uh, uh, an RV owner who decides that he can take advantage of the results of a flood by claiming that he lost his his uh, eldest son in it, you know that that's that's, that's something I had experience. I guess in my my work my old work uh, job working with uh, the aftermath of 
with the earthquake and, and seeing that just a lot of people were lying about how much they lost. Yeah, very good. There's uh, one, <laughs> it shouldn't go off on a sidetrack, but I, I will because I'm reminded of how I got into it. There, there was this, uh, after the 1989 earthquake in, in California, uh, there, there was also a hurricane, I forget, I think it was Hurricane Andrew on the East Coast. The amount of damage done by Hurricane Andrew far exceeded the amount done by the, the earthquake, although neither was insignificant. But there was, there was one resident of Oakland, California, who was a transvestite, and he was in a housing project. He filed 83 claims for the same uh, fish, fish tank allegedly with with very valuable fishes 83 claims and uh I, when the inspectors came he would change his appearance he'd be a hippie he'd be a man he'd be a woman he he got away with it the thing that finally caught up with him was uh, he used the same social security number on every claim and yeah you're, you're not in your head you know yeah sure he couldn't get away with that but he did for 82 the first 82 claims he filed went through you know so I, I thought that was that was pretty amazing, and that gave me the idea for Dry Bone Hollow, where a fellow just lies about losing a son in a in a flood. And, and, a, and a classic example of of truth always being better and sometimes stranger than fiction than anything you could create on your own. You know, exactly. having, nobody would believe that nobody would believe the three claims. Uh, whereas it's, it's sort of easy to believe that somebody would just hide a, a son. And in fact, the the flood that happens is, is one where a, uh, a, a mining dam lets loose into an underground mine shaft, which actually happened in Martin County around the early 2000s, I think. Uh, uh, Martin County, Kentucky, across the river from you. Mm -hmm. I assume you're, you're broadcasting from West Virginia, right? Right, yeah, southern Ohio, yeah, right across the, right right. Across the river, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyhow, that, that mining accident or that mining dam accident turned the big sandy black, turned the Ohio River black all the way to uh, Cincinnati. And very few people know about it outside the immediate area. Yeah, but that gave me the idea for Dry Bone Hollow. So a lot of the ideas for the mysteries come from something that actually happened in West Virginia or that happened somewhere and I transported to West Virginia. Very good. Uh, something else I wanted to ask you about, too, that um, you add that's kind of a really nice Appalachian touch is I love a lot of the down-home, homespun expressions. And I noted one that was in Dismal Mountain, which I really liked. And, and I don't remember exactly who was speaking or who they were talking to, but uh, there was an expression, um, uh, inspires. he inspires as much confidence as an umpire with a seeing eye dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I just find it in all of your books, you've got kind of these Appalachian down home, uh, homespun expressions. And I wanted to know if, if those were things you'd heard people use, or you just heard that conjecture growing up in Appalachia, where did you get some of those great expressions? Cause it really adds a lot of, uh, Appalachian culture and flair to your stories. Maybe the first two books, they were expressions I'd grown up with. Um, and then I was thought of, sort of thought I was running out, so I'd uh, I, I I mined literature and tried to find things that I could sort of adapt. You know, was, that was useful as a screen door on a submarine, or the umpire with the seeing eye dog. Uh, uh, you know that that I I like finding them and I like making them up. 
but uh, the first two books, they were just there. In fact, I, I remember uh, I, I remember I, I think it was uh, I can't remember the name of the movie now. It's gone, but I was watching it and some woman was described as having a butt that looked like two pigs fighting under a gunny sack. And I was at the theater, and everybody's laughing. And I thought, well, what are they laughing at? Everybody knows that expression. <laughs> you know, I heard that growing up. So I, I realized that some of that stuff I'd heard growing up, the rest of the world didn't know, just like they didn't know about the Martin County floods. So I, I credit my West Virginia upbringing. Well, I'm glad you added it because it really does add a lot of uh, a, a really good flair and culture uh, to the dialogue and to the characters. I want to ask you quickly about um, your second mystery series and Lloyd Keaton, who we meet, who's a Midwestern sports writer. He's got a little bit of a gambling problem, as we mentioned earlier, um, and he's involved in kind of his first mystery field of schemes which deals with baseball and steroids. And, and I know this came out uh, in 2012, and I feel like that, you know, Major League Baseball was kind of wrapping its head around uh, or trying to close out the, the steroids era, uh, you know, the Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, uh, Mark McGuire era from the late 90s early on. Uh, but what was interesting, too, when I was reading your book is that I couldn't think of a lot of sports-themed mysteries um, that I had read. I mean, I've read some of Dick Francis's stuff, and, and Dick Francis did a lot of sports books about horse racing and some some scandals involved there, some fictional scandals involved there. But when I was reading your book, I, I couldn't remember uh, or couldn't think of, other than Dick Francis, of, of a sports-themed mystery uh, or a sports-themed mystery series. Um, is that something that you were looking to kind of uh, – a niche you were trying to create when you uh, set up this series with Lloyd Keaton, or did you just – want to tell this story kind of like you did with your Owen Allison mysteries? Uh, no, you know, I think they're, I don't remember the authors now. Uh, probably in the 50s and 60s, there were sports-themed mysteries that weren't really sports-themed. They'd, they'd have, you know, a, a utility infielder would come to a city and he would find, I don't know, a real estate scam and he would solve, a, or he would solve a murder. But it had nothing to do with sports. And uh, I was fascinated by the whole steroid business. And so if, if you've read Field of Schemes, you know that uh, there's a player who, uh, who is in the minor leagues and he uh, really wants steroids. So he, he just pesters his trainer until the trainer doesn't want to give him steroids. So he gives him a mixture of cold cream and lemon juice and says, well, just smear this on and it'll, it'll give you the edge, and it's not going to be detected by baseball's uh, uh, protection system. And so the player does that, goes on a hitting spree, goes up to the majors, cut off from the supply of cold cream and lemon juice, and uh, suddenly, uh, let's see, what does that Oh, suddenly he tests positives for steroids, and uh, he blames the original trainer and then winds up dead under mysterious circumstances, which I'll say is the best kind to wind up under the mystery. So I, I, I wanted to deal with steroids, and, and each chapter in the uh, Lloyd Keaton mysteries leads off with a, a, one of his columns. He's a columnist. And so I get a chance to sort of comment on, uh, comment on the issues that, that interested me as well as write the mystery. So. 
Very good. Yeah. And I, I love Lloyd Keaton as well. I, I found him as, as interesting and engaging uh, of a protagonist as um, Owen Allison was. And it was really good to see, as you said, uh, a story set around sports where not just a character is connected to, to sports or uh, in some ancillary, ancillary way, you know, that it's actually yeah. an integral part of the story. So that was really good to see. I want to ask you about your latest book, uh, Hitchcock and the Censors. Um, because uh, this is kind of very different from what we've been talking about. Uh, and you're focusing on Alfred Hitchcock and kind of this, this organization uh, called the Motion Picture Production Code Office, which uh, a lot of people uh, from my generation or, or younger have no idea what that is, but they were kind of in power or uh, overseeing uh, motion, you know, controlling content and the final cut of all films made and distributed in the, in the U.S. from 1934 to 1968. What was the problem Hitchcock was running into uh, with the Motion Picture Production Code Office? And what kind of got you interested in, in focusing on Hitchcock's struggles with that office to write this book? Well, I was always interested in Hitchcock. I was a, a, an usher to the Keith Albee Theater in Huntington, West Virginia when I was growing up. Uh, uh, and Hitchcock was sort of the only director whose name was well known at that time. And I was fascinated by his films and always uh, stayed that way as I was growing up. Uh, um, but I, um, I happened on to the correspondence between Hitchcock and the production code office, the censors. Uh, quite by accident, I, I was at a conference in Los Angeles. A friend of mine was going to the Margaret Herrick Library there, which is the library that's maintained by the motion picture distributor, the motion pictures distributors of America. It's essentially the Oscar people. They, they have a, a wonderful library. And uh, my friend was going to research some, uh, some mysteries she was writing set in uh, with among screenwriters in the forties. And so I went along and, and uh, got to looking at, at what they had on file. They had, they, the library, had the entire correspondence between Hitchcock and these censors. And the censors, in 1934, uh, in, in self-defense, uh, the motion picture distributors and, and uh, producers were afraid that there was going to be national censorship. And there already was uh, uh, sort of state censorship. You'd have you know, you couldn't show women smoking in Massachusetts, but you could in New York, or you couldn't show a pregnant woman in one state, and but you couldn't in another. And they had to cope with all this. And so they said, well, you know, we can uh, censor ourselves. And they, they actually developed the code in uh, uh, 1930, but it had no teeth until 1934, when uh, under Roosevelt, they were afraid they'd not only you have to deal with state-by-state -state censorship, they'd have to deal with a national censorship. So they said, we can do it ourselves, and what's more, we will, uh, we'll make it so that every motion picture that's distributed in the U.S. has to have our seal of approval. And to get our seal of approval, they have to show us a script, and they have to show us the final film. And, <clears throat> but we'd be willing even to look at source material. If you wanted to purchase Gone with the Wind, you, you could send it to us, and we'd tell you, what the likely problems with that are. Um, so they had full control over everything that was shown in the, in the U.S. between the, started in, starting in 1934 and then finally ended with the, 
the rating system we now have, or rating system like that, in 1968. But uh, early on, uh, of course, Hitchcock was trying to push the limits of sex and violence, uh, and that was what they were most concerned with. But they were concerned with everything. You, there were words that you couldn't say. You couldn't say "geez." You couldn't say "cripes." You, words that were they were inoffensive even then. But they were the the production code office was worried about it. They were worried about cleavage. They were worried about you couldn't show a toilet. Um, you know, people think that Hitchcock broke 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 through with the scene in Psycho with the shower scene, which was actually uh, was actually done to circumvent the code. You know, he didn't show nudity. He didn't show didn't show the knife piercing the the body. He just showed cut after cut after cut. It's a harrowing scene, and we got it because of censorship. Actually, because he was getting around the censors. The thing that really broke the censors back was he showed a toilet. And he not only showed a toilet, he showed it flushing. And but believe it or not, that had never been done in, in U.S. movies from 1934 to, I guess, Psycho was around 60, 61. You know, you know they, they just wouldn't allow you to have scenes. But if you had a scene in a bathroom, it couldn't have a toilet. Uh, you couldn't even hear a toilet flushing next, in the room next door. This happened in several Hitchcock films where, you know, you would see the, the administrator from the production code office can't show the toilet. Can't show the toilet in the cell in uh, Wrong Man. Uh, can't uh, have toilet flushing in in off screen in uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It's just a whole range of films where they were dealing with uh, um, just uh, they're not absurd, but they're uh, absurdly promote uh, promoted, uh, promoted uh, just just crazy things that that they need they the production code office inflicted on him and he eventually learned to get a lot around it uh, earlier in his career he came over to america in 1940 he sort of went along with them but he learned then to uh, cope with them by uh trading off one thing or another or actually putting in things he knew they would take out so he could say well if you take this you got to give me something else and uh it was very clever that way they, they did, I think, a lot of harm. Well, they did a lot of harm to movies at the time. But, but the thing that, that most hurt Hitchcock's movies was the, the admonition that evildoers had, couldn't get away with it. So you had films like Rebecca, where the, in the book, uh, Maxim de Winter actually kills, his, kills Rebecca and hides, uh, you know, hides the effects of that. And uh, they... Production code office wouldn't let him do that. So uh, Hitchcock actually suggested, well, maybe the story is still the same, but when Rebecca taunts Maxim to win her, as, as she did, which led to her, his killing her, uh, in the process of taunting her, she trips and falls and cracks her head and dies. And then for no good reason, uh, Maxim to win her, you know, does the same thing he did in the book, which was, Hide the, hide the uh, the body and and uh, as if he were trying to get away with murder. So it makes no sense at all. But Hitchcock was never big on plausibility. Um, but nobody notices. You're having so much fun. So I I don't know. I'm rambling on, but that's that sort of the the reason I got into it is that I was fascinated by the correspondence between the production and Hitchcock. They 
they, they had an average of 22 issues that he had to address with each film he made. And a lot of them were ridiculous, but some actually altered the film in many ways. You had to alter the plot, or you had to take out a key scene, or you had to take out uh, an element of a key scene. And, uh, uh, you know, I, it was just, I showed the book to a couple of modern directors, and one, Darren Aronofsky, said, this is, it's just mind-boggling, the sweaty tango that Hitchcock had to do. With, with the production code office. It's just an utter waste of his time. And it was, you know, so I, I don't know what, I, I don't know whether he would have made different movies, certainly would have made different movies, uh, but I, whether they would have been better or, or dealt with, it, it was, he would had a wider range of themes to do with if, if they hadn't been around. But also it was just, you know, his time was taken up dealing with, with these cockamamie, requests and, and questions and it, it makes you wonder too if the uh when you look at movies today if the motion picture production code office was around today what they would think about some of our movies <laughs> in terms of violence and and and, and nudity and 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 toilets and uh, blood and all the things that we see uh, in our films today they they certainly would be uh all over a lot of the films that are produced today for for a lot of those different yeah you would never you would never a lot of the films today would never have been released you don't no, necessarily that's a bad thing. Certainly, uh, I think censorship generally, certainly at the level it was applied by the production code offices, is generally a bad thing. There's a, a quote that I wanted to use in the book and never did. It was sort of censorship is like an appendix. If it's, if it's inert, it's okay. But once it starts acting up, you're in big trouble. That's a paraphrased quote. But so, uh, yeah, it, it, we, we, I was going to say we had self-censorship today. The, the production code takes care of some of that, and, but it's still censorship in a way. There's a chapter in the book where I deal with that, that, that you, the production code will still go to a director and say, well, you know, if you want to up this from an R to a PG movie, this is what you have to do. So there's still some scenes. There's, there's the, this element is still there, but it's not. It's not. We won't give you a. We won't let you release the movie. We won't let you release the movie if you don't do this. It's more. Well, we'll rate it a little. Uh, we'll give it a, an R instead of a, a PG rating. Very good. So, John, and I, John, in our final moments with you uh, today, if um, anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, your books uh, and especially your latest book, Hitchcock and the Censors, uh, where can they get or how can they get in contact with you, first of all, and where can they get copies of Hitchcock and the Censors or your Owen Allison or Lloyd Keaton Mystery Series books? Well, they're all available on Amazon. Um, Hitchcock and the Censors is out now. The new book, the newest uh, Owen Allison book, will be uh, uh, available September 3rd, I believe. It's called Primary Target and deals with uh, voting shenanigans in West Virginia. Um, you can, uh, I have a, a website, www.johnbillheimer.com. It's the easiest way to get in touch with me, or people can, and in fact, the, the website has my email address, which I'm perfectly happy to give. It's john.wbill at batnet.com. 
but that's such a mouthful. Unless you see it written down, you're not going to remember it. So it just, my name, John Bilheimer, just Google me or www.johnbilheimer.com gets you to my website and that'll get you to my email address. John Bilheimer has been our guest here today on Now Appalachia. He's a native West Virginian who now lives in Portola Valley, California. He is the author of the book mystery series set in Appalachia featuring failure analyst Owen Allison and also a second mystery series featuring Midwest sports writer with a gambling problem Lloyd Keaton. And his latest book is Hitchcock and the Censors, which deals with Alfred Hitchcock uh, and his battles with the Motion Picture Production Code Office, which controlled a lot of films and content and what was released from 1934 to 1968. John, congratulations on all of your work, uh, two terrific mystery series, and I know the Hitchcock book is going to be great too. So congratulations to all those. And as you keep writing and keep uh, getting Owen and Lloyd and all kinds of problems, we'd love to have you back on uh, the program to talk about it. So thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I'd, I'd love to be back. Thank you for doing it. That's going to do it for this episode of Now Appalachia. I want to say thanks so much to uh, our producer, Teresa Russ. The executive producer of Now Appalachia is Pam Stack. This is a copyrighted podcast owned by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Elliot Parker. Stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope.